Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Jerusalem's Lot, a short story found in Night Shift. Let's start the show. Charles Boone has just moved into his ancestral home at Chapelwaite in Maine, along with his manservant, Calvin. They quickly learn that the house is not all that it seems, and mysteries about Boone's ancestors and a nearby abandoned village may be a cause of concern. How does one even have an ancestral home? <laughs> I mean, one has ancestors who have a home that's been passed down through the ages. Hmm. Okay. It's a fairly common phrase in Scooby-Doo, Jay. Ah, I wasn't in the Scooby-Doo frame of mind. <laughs> you, I'm always in the Scooby-Doo frame of mind. <laughs> All right, so Jerusalem's Lot, Jay, this is a short story that was first published in Night Shift, which is an early collection of Stephen King stories. I think it's actually the first short story collection that was published. It came out in 1978, and this is one of the few short stories in that book that was not in a magazine first. Most of his uh, short story collections were brought together from his publications in uh, men's magazines, but Jerusalem's Lot seemed to be written specifically for the book. And it's interesting because um, I'm guessing it's because Salem's Lot itself came out in 1975 and it was fairly uh, popular for King. Carrie was the first book and then Salem's Lot came out second. And then there was a TV miniseries of Salem's Lot in 1979. And so Jerusalem's Lot serves as a type of prequel. It's the first book in the collection. Um, I didn't do any research, but I'm guessing that it was probably a sales point at that point of a uncollected Stephen King story, never before seen, potentially. Yes. Good reason to buy this collection, right? Just for that one story. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I find it a good idea to buy any Stephen King short story collection. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah, Four Past Midnight might be a yeah, one that, you can miss. That, but that, That's a rough one. That's a rough mm -hmm. one. Um, this story was also collected in 2005 for the illustrated Salem's Lot edition. And it also has a short story called One for the Road, which is also in Night Shift, which is, serves as a sequel to Salem's Lot. It's, uh, after the events. And we'll talk about that short story in a few episodes after we get through Salem's Lot itself. That's right. There's also a comic book adaptation. Uh, in a book called Secretary of Dreams by Glenn Chadbourne. That was published by Cemetery Dance, which does a lot of special editions and comics. I'm guessing after uh, last episode's uh, comic debacle, we'll not be picking that up anytime soon, will we, Jay? Yeah, I've sort of been soured on comic book adaptations of books, but uh, I don't know. One adaptation shouldn't be the only thing that I expose myself to. Perhaps I should give it a chance. Yeah. And Glenn Chadbourne seems to have an interesting resume as an artist. I think he came to prominence in a Stephen King newsletter. That's how he got seen first. He was doing some illustrations for a Stephen King newsletter back in the day and has since turned that into a, a career where he's been doing other illustrated work, including some in the Salem's Lot Illustrated Edition, as well as some other Stephen King books. So worth looking up. Um, and as I mentioned, this is a prequel to Salem's Lot in some ways. Uh, it's got the full name, Jerusalem's Lot, in case you're wondering what Salem's Lot stood for. Now you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, it's also, I guess, a, a hint at the fact that we're going to be spending a lot of time and a lot of episodes talking about 
vampires in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm always down for vampires. And I guess that's a good way to transition. So I've obviously read this story before because I read Night Shift when I was much younger, so probably 30-some years ago now. But for whatever reason, it's been stuck in my head that Jerusalem's Lot, as a prequel to Salem's Lot, was another vampire short story, and that would build on the the vampireness of of Salem's Lot and, and introduce that to it. And then we get into the format, which is uh, epistolary, and which immediately draws connections to Bram Stoker's Dracula. And yep. I'm thinking, hey, we're going to have more vampires. But oddly enough, there's some undead in here, but it is not a typical vampire story. Yeah. And I really love the epistolary format that King used. I thought he was remarkably successful at not only following this structure to stick with the literary format, but also to emulate the language of the time period that the story takes place. This really felt like a story that was written contemporaneously with the events. Yes. Um, it rang true to like another Bram Stoker story or an Edgar Allan Poe story. It, it uh, just some of the words that King chose to use, some of his spelling choices, some of his like compound words and odd capitalizations it all felt of a piece, and I, I think it worked really well to set the tone. Yeah, I totally agree. So this, I should have mentioned this earlier, but this story set uh, pre-Civil War um, in the 1850s, and uh, it does very much mimic what you might think letters of the time would sound like, or if you've read letters of the time, what they actually did sound like. So uh, mm -hmm. King not only has an ear for modern day language, as we've talked about before, but also early American language as well. And as I like to do, I, I did a little bit of a, a little bit of research on epistolary format. So, Jay, it's interesting because there are different types of epistolary writings. There's monologic, which would be a story that's told from one perspective. And for most of this story, you think it is just from one perspective. It's Boone's letters to Bones. Mm -hmm. But then at some point it becomes dialogic, meaning two, because we get these journal entries from Calvin that sort of fill in a couple of blanks where we don't get Boone's perspective either because he's taken ill or we just get a little bit of insight into Calvin's. Um, and then there's a third called polylogic, which incorporates many different types of, of writing. And we get a little bit of that with that bonus coda from one of Boone's descendants that makes it polylogic. So there is your English literature terminology lesson for the day. Do the epistolary sub formats apply only to the type of writing? Is it like only for letters or like if it's like not a letter, but um, I don't know, a series of journal entries or something like that? Yeah. So I think epistolary just means not necessarily um, letters always, but also different formats. So it could be journal entries, newspapers, and that's how Dracula is set up, right? Where there's not only the- It's a journal. Yeah. It's a journal, but there's also, I think, like a ship's manifest in there and there's newspaper articles. And so there's a bunch of different types of writing. And I would imagine that nowadays we get ones with emails and texts and stories like that, that would, that would still apply as epistolary, even if they're not in a letter mm -hmm. format. Could like a found footage style of film uh, be a, an epistolary? That's a good question. I would imagine so. Mm, interesting. So it'd be really cool to adapt this story into a movie in that way somehow. Or TV miniseries. Yeah. 
Hmm. <laughs> Are we on to something here? We might be. So the format is interesting too, because we, especially when you get to that bonus coda, because I, for one, um, you sort of take Boone's letters as straightforward. Yeah. You take him at his word. Like you have no reason to think that he's lying or insane or making this up, but it's not till the end when you get the coda that the descendant puts a little bit of a different spin and says, oh, well, this is what happened. And I'm not sure that's the case. And I, I'm just going to have to do some more research on my own. And, oh, by the way, I hear some weird scratching in the walls. I'll have to get that looked into. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like when we first are introduced to Boone, we find out that he, one of the reasons why he moved to Maine was because he was ill. Yeah. And, and he was kind of like his own sanity was in question. And now as this ancestral home and its hauntings are driving him mad, are we to believe him, you know, at face value, is he going, is he just a kind of a, a person who is sickly succumbing to the pressures of the haunting of his ancestral home and, and what's happening in Jerusalem's lot? Or is he just going back into the same madness that he narrowly escaped from, you know, before he moved to Maine? Right. So in the beginning, I guess it feels like it could go either way. And then we're just along for the ride. We're like, we're either reading the writings of a madman, which culminate in his suicide because of what he believes to be true, or he's a perfectly sane person experiencing ridiculous <laughs> uh, you know, events that he thinks he can only put a stop to by ending his own life. Right. And then like in the coda, it's like, yeah, all of the things he said happened in the letters, there's no evidence for, you know, like the, the church in Jerusalem's lot was not destroyed there was no gaping pit down into the bowels of the earth there was none of none of the things he talked about in the letter were there so clearly he imagined all of this but there's scratching in the walls there's there's there must be some giant rats in the yeah. cellar you know so i guess here we go again right <laughs> here we go again yeah yeah so as i said earlier i was expecting this to be more about vampires but as you read into it it really becomes more of a H.P. Lovecraft type Cthulhu mythos story where instead of undead creatures sucking the blood of, of their victims, there are these awful evil ones that are beyond the ken of man that are living in the earth and weird magics bring them back into our plane of existence, whether that be through this book of magic that uh, Boone's ancestor reads from and, and calls magic forth and causes all this craziness and it's much bigger than the mind can tell and there's giant worms and it really sort of took me by surprise because again like i was saying i was expecting vampires and instead we get this giant mm -hmm. worm creature that tears apart calvin and drives drives Boone to to, to suicide what, what was your thought on what you were expecting what you what you got jay i was also expecting vampires and i think that this was moving along really splendidly in terms of we're going to see vampires. We're going to see vampires. Um, King was doing a lot of really good work with vampire imagery and vampire foreshadowing. You know, he described the, the rocky shoreline where the, the waves are breaking as, you know, fangs, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there are all these allusions to, you know, incomplete reflections and stuff like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of imagery, just like in the beginning of Little Sisters of Aluria, where he's really setting the stage for. By the way, blood's involved in this story. By the way, vampires are involved in this story. So yeah, when it turned to 
you know, Cthulhu. It was like a really sharp left turn for me. And where I was kind of like gobsmacked by that that hard turn was when Boone started yelling out the crazy language that was from the that old book, yeah. right? And he was like possessed by the language, the this magical force that had finally possessed him. Then he was speaking in tongues or or whatever, and. I'm like, ah, oh, this just got weird, you know? <laughs> it <laughs> like got it, really it, weird, yeah. It got really weird all of a sudden. And I wasn't disappointed, or I should say, I, I didn't think it was bad, but I was really psyched for a vampire reveal, you know? Like, I was hoping that some deeply ancient vampire was going to come out of that pit. Yeah. That that hand that crawled its way out was actually a vampire. And that's where we were going to go. And instead it was, nope, worm time. <laughs> and, and you know, so it worked, but it wasn't what I was expecting. No, exactly. And that the whole inbred cult of, of, of his ancestors is just adding to the weirdness and creepiness of the whole thing. And while, while there, there is undead both in the house and in Jerusalem's lot, they're not the type of undead that we were expecting and not caused the way that we were expecting them to. And we have not read Salem's Lot yet. Obviously, that's coming up, so we can't do too much comparisons. But I wonder if this is King just sort of setting the stage for there's something about this area of the world that's drawing evil or monsters or weirdness here. Whether And, and that's why the vampires choose Salem's Lot to come to in the book. Well, I guess we'll find that out yeah. if there's a special reason. But it does seem like there is something about this area that that's causing this there's a sign only vampires can see that says <laughs> evil welcome <laughs> come here lots to eat <laughs> free hbo and blood yeah so when i put it all together a lot of this seems and again this is early king um he'd obviously published a number of books and a, a ton of short stories at this point but it does seem like early king we talked about how the gunslinger doesn't seem like a Stephen King book because mm -hmm. the writing is so different from what it is. And it's almost like, um, and it was a young man who was trying something out. Yeah. You know, drawing from different inspirations. And this seems like another story where that's the case a little bit, not a little bit, a lot better in my opinion, as far as nailing it though. Like he's got the Bram Stoker letter writing and, and the vampires, he's got the HP Lovecraft weird Cthulhu piece, and he's able to put that all together. And even though, it is some sort of pastiche. It still works as a Stephen mm. King story. And he's obviously a master at the writing. Like he talks about in the foreword to Night Shift about how his main thought is story, story, story. He always wants there to be plot and moving it along. And while there needs to be characterizations and settings and all those other pieces that come in writing, if you don't have story, you don't have anything. And this definitely has story. It's constantly pushing you along. What happens next? What happens next? What's going to happen? Um, and you get that here. I agree. This was a lot of fun to read. It was, it kind of felt like a return to form for King for me. Like it, as you say, it's a lot different than many of his other works, especially like, I don't know, we've talked about sort of peak King, like that, you know, the eighties to yeah. early nineties era when he was just like cranking out books. And that's sort of what a lot of people think of when they think of King. This is definitely not like those works. And just like the gunslinger, it's not like those works. But yeah, uh, as as an homage to all of those pieces and styles that he was aping a little bit and making his own, um, I think this is very successful. I think, yeah, if 
if I had anything to gripe about, I would say maybe uh, not do the Cthulhu stuff. Maybe <laughs> stick with the vampires. Yeah. As I told you earlier, I read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft when I was younger, and I still play up till this day Call of Cthulhu. So this isn't something that I'm foreign to, but I've gotten a little bit down. Not a little bit, a lot bit down. H.P. Lovecraft's not a good writer, in my opinion. Like, it's just a dense and a slog to read. Um, and if my brother's listening, he's probably upset because I know he still is a Lovecraft fan. But for me, it's just not easy to read. And knowing what I know about Lovecraft now and what a sort of horrible person he was, I I sort of distance myself from it. I do like some of the ideas and I do think that there's fun stuff to do with it. And here I think King's having a good time with it. Later on, he uses some of the Cthulhu stuff in some of his later short stories, his more recent stuff and from a Buick Ake and those books have left a really bad taste in my mouth too because they're not good king and so i think like i when i when it started to get to that i think i brought my own biases into it and i didn't quite like it as much but it's interesting because when you and i were talking there are a number of connections to the dark tower that made me think well maybe i should reconsider some of those books in light of our readings of the dark tower so maybe we should talk about some of those dark tower thinnies Yes, let's. And I think just bouncing off of the point you just made, was King doing Lovecraft when he talks about these giant, unimaginable creatures that exist in Todash space? Is that still an homage or a connection to to Lovecraft? Or is his King at that point made that his own? Mm. You know, whether it's whatever the creature is that is it right? Or whatever the turtle is, whatever, you know, these things are bigger than the universe in some ways. And there are all of these thinnies in the Dark Tower that open to Todash space or to just broken worlds, broken versions of the world in the multiverse that are filled with creatures like this worm. Yeah. And in the comic book adaptation, maybe more directly than in the book, Wizard in Glass, the thinny that the young gunslingers encounter in Magus seems to open upon another world filled with tentacle worm-like monsters yeah. that you know manipulate you mentally, kind of possess you, draw you in, and then consume you, right? It's not just jumping into another world that is so subtly different than you. You have to check the paper money in your wallet to find out right. if it, anything's even changed. So maybe all this is a um, little bit of headcanon here is just like another one of those Todash creatures that has found its way into our world through a thinny. And that thinny was opened up through this ancient dark magic Mm. that was compiled into these old Celtic books. And if that's what it is, I think it's a direct connection to the Dark Tower. And I think I like it even more. Yeah. Because then it's it's not just a Lovecraft homage. Then it's like, it fits in. It's of a piece of everything King has done. Yeah, his multiverse. Right. Yeah. Yeah, when you said that, and I started to make those connections, I thought that made a lot of sense, and it did make me reconsider and say, okay, well, maybe that maybe that is a good point, because we do get another giant worm like the one that chases Susanna, mm-hmm. and yeah. I was like, oh, I just sort of thought that that worm that was chasing after Susanna and, and Roland was, you know, because that world's so weird, and it's got slow mutants and inbred monsters that maybe whatever thing befell that world that, to cause it to move on created these giant worms. But when you think about it in terms of, oh, well, maybe it is that Todash space that allows these things to move throughout worlds, that makes a little bit more sense. So 
I'm down with that. Yeah. I also like the fact that, and again, this is a common Stephen King trope, but the haunted house that is really what draws in um, Boone in this case. So when we start the story, that was the other thing that threw me is like, oh, we're in Chapel Wait. We're not in Jerusalem's lot. What? Why is this story called Jerusalem's lot? And the haunted house that's here is not in Jerusalem's lot. And there's something in the basement and he and Calvin are going to do it. And they see the undead creatures and they're like, oh, this is why, why is this story called Jerusalem's lot? And it turns out this haunted house is somewhat of a red herring, right? All mm-hmm. the all the real horror takes place in the abandoned village that they, they have to go explore. Um, but that's another haunted house that's drawing the, the main characters in, just like Jake needs to um, in Midworld. And again, that might be a little bit more of a tenuous connection because haunted houses are nothing that King hasn't played around with before in It, The Shining, and any other number of books. But one of the, the thoughts I had on that was that it, I think it makes it a little less tenuous of a connection is that in the wastelands, when Jake goes into that haunted house, that house be- the house comes to life. It starts to bend and crack apart to to hold onto him, to consume him, right? And in the process of that, it wrecks its own structure. Mm. You know, it it's it's a house made of wood and mortar and unbendable things that it breaks and bends. So by the time it is done trying to catch and hold on to Jake, it basically becomes a, a wrecked house, right? Yeah. And I felt that maybe there was some of that here when they go into the evil church, the church of the worm, right? When Boone first walks in there, he sees like all of the pews have been flung into the sides and the the unholy cross has been ripped from the wall and thrown against another wall with such force that there's a giant dent in the wall above where the the cross lay on the ground so we start to imagine what has enough physical power and force to to just do this to the inside of a the big space like a church and i thought well what if the church itself was like the house that was going after jake yeah it was it was destroying itself in it because it was possessed by evil demons or something so that's what i was thinking turns out it was just wrecked because a giant worm went through it <laughs> but eh, whatever teach their own <laughs> yeah well jay you and i both seem to have a good time with this book do you have any fun stuff that you want to share with our listeners i do I had a couple of uh really good lines okay one was the dark seemed to press like wool, as if jealous of the light which had temporarily deposed it after so many years of undisputed domain. Just, just cool imagery there. Just, uh, just great, great stuff from King there. Yeah. And another great line, which I think touches on when Boone and Calvin first enter the church, that the room echoed back our footsteps and seemed to transmute them into the sound of gigantic laughter. <laughs> nice. It's like the the space itself is mocking you. Yeah. Um, I noted, of course, that this story takes place in October, a fall month uh, with Halloween at the end. And the first letter that Boone writes is dated October 2nd, 1850. And the final letter is from the descendant Boone, and his is also October 2nd, but now in 1971. So we, we have that the story comes full circle, starting with October 2nd and both days. And Boone disappeared in the entire damn village with him on October 31st, 1789, which is, of course, Halloween. So Philip Boone being Boone's ancestor. The first Boone to be consumed by this evil. Yeah. Yeah. So stay away from Jerusalem's lot in October, I think, is the uh, moral of the story. Especially on Halloween. Especially on Halloween. Um, There's another geet line. 
Another geet. Yes, this line is so geet. I didn't even have time for the R. Uh, this is Boone describing the floors in his ancestral home, and he says about them, the floors are a rich pine that glow with an inner and secret light. I really like the secret light part. I like when King uses the word secret mm. because there's there's a lot going on here in the early, I guess, chapters of the story where Boone is simultaneously falling in love with, but also disparagingly describing his ancestral home. Like he's he's saying like, oh, that you know, the furniture's so ugly and it's like perversely carved and and everything but he's he also can't seem to keep the flowery stuff out of his language when he's describing it like these are these are boone's words about the floor yeah right it has a secret light you know like okay these are just pine boards but no there's something about this this <laughs> place that it seems like it's really growing on him yeah either that or boone missed his calling as a realtor yeah could put this on Zillow.com. That would sell that house in a second. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we, we discussed the Lovecraft and the Bram Stoker connections, but there is also this piece where Calvin discovers a secret code that he must deduce. And that made me think of Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug, which mm-hmm. also has a secret code that gets deduced. And again, similar time period and knowing that, that King's probably drawing on a number of different writers, I, I made that connection immediately with with Poe. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I have a feeling it was. I think it absolutely was. And and at the time that Poe wrote The Gold Bug, that was like a very fashionable thing to have in a story mm. because people would eat that up. They would, you know, buy that story from Poe because it had a puzzle in it. Yeah. And and they could solve it along with the the characters in the story. And then my final fun stuff is that the introduction of Night Shift is by John D. McDonald, who we've mentioned many times before in this series as uh, somebody that Stephen King has name dropped uh, throughout the Dark Tower. Um, he actually wrote the introduction here and was a fan of Stephen King and his ability to, to write stories. So uh, nice to see John D. McDonald here as a participant. Altogether, this book made me realize how much, or the story made me realize how much I love Stephen King short stories. Yeah. In addition to reading this one over the past couple of weeks, I've read two or three more that are in Night Shift just to refamiliarize myself with them. Good stuff. We could probably do a whole podcast on all the different short stories and be good to go, but we're going to try to keep it to the uh, Dark Tower stuff for the time being. Absolutely. And with a maybe not so brief focus on vampire stuff from Stephen King. Yes. Well, that is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover The Night Flyer, found in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Send yourself into the mouth of madness. (laughs) I don't like how I said that at all. (laughs)